so we're wrapping up. Uh, we've been looking at the, we, we say we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. And if we have, we've been looking at it sort of in, in sort of context of the whole thing. We pulled out a couple Proverbs here and there. But we learned a few things. I wanted to make sure you remember those before we wrap things up, I'm going to ask you to uh, think a little bit about your work and your vocation, maybe a little bit differently than you normally do. Um, and so let me first remind you that we have discovered these things during, of, among others during this series. So one, wisdom, remember, is preexistent, right? God created wisdom and then used wisdom as a blueprint to create all that he created. And now we live within that creation with access to that very same wisdom that both judges us and teaches us how to live within the creation. But it preexisted uh, creation. We see that in Proverbs chapter 8. We see when we pull out the Proverbs individually that they are not to be taken as promises. They're a little too black and white. In some ways, as you might, in some ways you might say extreme. You cannot depend on them uh, to be that kind of uh, scripture. For example, Proverbs 14.23 says, all hard work brings a profit. Is that true? <laughs> Lots of times it is. We look at the individual Proverbs and we understand them to be probabilities. Probable. This is probable. What would happen? This would be ideal in God's perfect world if it wasn't harmed by sin and corrupted. It would work this, but it doesn't. So we look at the Proverbs and remember, we can't just pull them and cherry pick them and think, okay, that is rock solid promise. It's probable. It's a principle. From the very beginning, uh, we see that the wisdom is a pursuit. Uh, Eric set this up very well in week one. We talked about Adam and Eve standing before the tree in which they had been instructed uh, by the wisdom of God to not eat of the fruit of the tree. And they stood there for at least a moment and thought, do we do it or do we not? And we stand in the same posture with regard to wisdom. It's a pursuit. We interact with the wisdom that God gave us and we make decisions to and fro whether or not we're going to pursue wisdom and thereby pursue the presence of God. It's a pursuit. Uh, within that, you do find a promise throughout Proverbs, and that is, right, it, as you can't pull them out individually, but as a whole, we understand that wisdom promises to bring us closer to God, promises to assist us in the process of being who God intended for us to be and doing what God intended for us to do and interacting with the world in a way that cultivates it according to the kingdom uh, that God is building. We do have that promise that good things await those who pursue wisdom. Um, not least important is the fact that wisdom is a person. The New Testament speaks of Jesus just as the Old Testament speaks of wisdom. And Paul, in essence, makes them synonymous. In 1 Corinthians, he says, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What we understand in our Christian faith is that Jesus is the ultimate interpreter and explainer of wisdom. We run everything through Jesus, including the word. The more we know Jesus, the more we listen to Jesus, the wiser we become. We learn that Proverbs cannot be dipped into, right, and just taken out one piece at a time, you have to keep the entire book in your head and compare passage with passage all the time. How do you do that? 
Well, this is another thing that we learn from the New Testament throughout the Bible, certainly. How is something like that best done? How do we keep our wits about us? How do we keep our mind on Christ? How do we keep our heart where it is to be? How do we keep the entire context of the Bible in front of us and before us? We do it in community. This is why we gather. This is why we gather in large groups. This is why we gather in small groups. We're trying to figure out and remember what this means and how this applies to me. And we know that we can't do that independent of Jesus or others. The wisdom of God is preexistence. It's probable. It's a pursuit. It's a promise. It's a person. And it's best done in plurality, I would add. Remember those things as you're thinking about the Proverbs and you're engaging uh, life as you go forward. I'm going to finish up today with uh, some more thoughts, like I said, about work. Uh, I brought it up a few weeks ago, wasn't able to finish. Um, Work, meaning the vocation that God has given and blessed you to do, whether it's raising a flower or raising a child or writing a program or digging a ditch or building a building or serving a customer. God has given you a work. He has blessed you to do it. We need to lean into it, have a posture uh, accordingly. Uh, It's not an easy thing, but we're compelled by Scripture. Here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Okay, Paul says, look, let's make sure you understand that it is by grace that you've been saved, that you have been reconciled to God, that your sins have been paid. It's through your faith. He says, and it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works. We don't confuse the work that God has given us with the work that he's given Jesus to do for us. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's not by works, for we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus, saved, sanctified, redeemed by the work of Jesus. We are now to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is only faith for you to do in the, work, in the space of your salvation, but there is work to do uh, on God's behalf in this world uh, as a result of that redemption. And we've seen this all through the Proverbs. The Proverbs speak magnitudes into city and public workspaces, it speaks of, the, of commerce and the market in Proverbs chapter 1. It speaks of the justice system and the courts in Proverbs chapter 9. It does not allow us to separate our work from the work of God. And that's a significant challenge on many levels for all of us to integrate, to see our work integrated and, and in alignment and in phase with our faith. It's in, arguably impossible on our own. We do need to do it together. I need, we need more experienced people in particular fields of work with younger people looking through a book like Proverbs and understanding and applying its insights to the work we're doing. Rarely does that that thought naturally cross our mind when we're sitting doing work that doesn't seem at all related to God's work, that God is saying, look at your work and your workspace and your work environment and see how it is that I want you to be in that work and how to do that work 
and how to influence those that are around you, how to do your work in a way that is good for the society and the community in which you live. There are so many good resources on this, and we are only scratching the surface. I wanted to direct you toward uh, three that um, Adam has brought to my attention through the time of the series. Um, One is by Tim Keller. Uh, you, you can see the titles up there. Uh, he, he's saying here essentially that uh, work is more than a means of survival. How many of you fall into that camp? Look, I just work to make money so I can live. He's saying it's more than survival. It's a means of contributing to God's work. Steve Garber um, writes this way. He's a principal of, uh, I think it's called the Washington Institute of like, Faith and Culture or something like that. Um, he urges readers to acknowledge the world's problems the heartbreaks, the brokenness, and consider how their talents, yours and mine, interests and abilities might be addressed, used to address these issues in some way, hence finding your vocation, right? And then Andy Crouch, uh, a pastor and writer and author and coach, uh, is essentially saying that Christians should be actively involved in making and changing culture in a way that reflects God's intentions into the world. Three wonderful books I would encourage you to jump into. Today, I'm going to finish and try to wrap this series up and introduce you or maybe even remind you of a significant connection to work, another major theme in Scripture, and that is worship. Expressly, what I want to do today is show you how work is worship and how worship takes work. But let me start here. Have you ever thought about your work, or recognize it as a calling from God? Does that, does that, has that thought been in your mind? Has that consideration come to your heart at some point in your life that, that my work is something that God has ordained for me, that has called to me? Have you understood or heard the, a divine whisper about what you are to do? Have you, have you ever sensed God's direction toward a particular kind of work or his pleasure with the work that you are doing? Maybe you felt nudged toward something that you can't put your finger on quite yet, something welling up inside of you. I, I've personally experienced these kinds of things in my life, and it hasn't all been around necessarily what you would call Christian work. When I was eight years old, I was standing along a curb in downtown Irwin at a parade. And then when the Navy A6 intruder flew over, full throttle, I thought to myself, I want to be there so much more than I want to be here. And I spent the next 15 years pursuing that dream and eventually arrived in that cockpit of a a jet. I, I I felt called to it. All through the remaining of elementary school and middle school and high school, I I had a sense of this is where I'm going. I was come to find out when when it found its resolution that I was in the midst of a a fraternity and a a fellowship that in large part was uh, far from God. And I I could see how God might use me in that space. So what I would have not identified as a calling when I was eight years old, when it came to fruition, I began to recognize that God had 
something for me to do in that space. And then that dream crashed to the ground, not literally, it's probably not a good metaphor, uh, way faster and, and than I ever could have imagined. And so I, I did not finish a, a flying career in the, in the Air Force. I ended up flying a desk for about six or seven years. And in that time, in that transition, when that, when that calling ended, I remember the feeling of just being aimless. For 15 years, since my youngest conscious thoughts, I had this direction. Suddenly, that was no longer there. And I remember just praying. I remember asking us, like, what now? And there wasn't any replacement of the calling. I had, I had no, nothing, not even an interest. <laughs> you know, I was searching for something. And then what happened for the next 10 years, I, I had no other recourse really because I didn't have this sort of internal pull. It was all I could do was respond to a verse that God put on my heart. Second Chronicles 16.9. That the eyes of the Lord search throughout the earth to strengthen the heart of a faithful man. And that became my calling. Nothing in particular, but just to be faithful. And what that translated into was when God brought something to the table, I just said yes. I, I am where I am in this life, not because I had any plans or designs on it, but because I said yes at some critical points, not knowing what that yes actually was going to mean. Two entirely different senses, postures. One was a, like I was pushed and pulled towards something. Another was no real direction, but just an obedience to say yes and to see in retrospect how God may have used that path for his sake. Very different. And, and you might find yourself in one or two of those extremes or in between, or maybe never considered it at all that you have a special and a unique something that God has for you. But maybe you do feel it. Maybe you, maybe you feel like the writer in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that he, his labor is good, which isn't a person trying to convince themselves of that. It's someone that's able to say, is able to say to themselves, Labor, labor is good. Maybe, maybe you have found that space. Maybe, maybe, maybe for the first time, the, the satisfaction and the joy that you feel in your work might resolve itself into understanding, oh, this is in part because God has created me for it. Maybe there's a perspective change coming for you in that. But maybe this is the time you just start sorting it out. You've never had that thought before, what does God want to do with my life? And now you can start thinking about, oh, I didn't even realize that was a thing. Many Christians have been taught that faith and work are separate. Uh, many of you uh, follow our lead and have uh, a blessed 10 list. For those of you that are unfamiliar, it's just really a process of uh, building a relationship toward being able to share the story of of God in your life and, and the gospel with uh, a friend. And it starts with a list of 10 people who are far from God. And I've sat with dozens of people and worked through with them 
the names that they would put on that. And some people have so many names they can't hardly keep them under 10. And some people are scratching their heads looking for one. They don't realize the mission field that is right before them. So you start asking questions like, do you go to the same UDF every morning? Do you see that same person? Where do you take your dry cleaning? Who's your auto mechanic? Uh, what, what neighbors do you run into when you're walking the dog or out uh, walking yourself? <laughs> uh, what, what, what is it? What about your um, office suite mate at work? And m- on more than one occasion, someone would step in at that point and say, oh, oh uh, I park my faith at the door when I get to work. There's company policies and things like that, and faith and work don't mix. And I'm like, I get that. I understand. There are, there are boundaries. There are, you know, sensitivities but there's nothing stopping you from being at step one of praying for the person next to you. No one can get involved and stop that. They can't. But you can pray for them. And it was an eye-opening experience for this person to go, oh, my, my work. God can be in that space of my work and in that space of my relationships at work. Our work is ordained by God You are ordained by God. Humanity is ordained by God. This creation is working toward an end that is designed by God, and you cannot separate all of that out. This is God's world, God's creation, God's direction, God's plan, God's purposes, and within it, he's created work. There is no separating it. This whole concept of calling or vocation um, is, is seen throughout Christian history. God gets Abraham's attention. He gets Isaiah's attention. He gets Hannah's attention. He gets Mary's attention. He gets Peter's attention. He gets Paul's attention. He gets Billy Graham's attention. He gets Johnny Erickson Tata's attention. And he gives them a job when he gets their attention. Always gives them a direction, a purpose, a calling. And like I've intimated too, it doesn't necessarily Refer, and maybe even mostly refer to church or ministry work. Most of you would think, well, certainly, Pastor Mike, you have a calling. God has called your life. And say, I would say it is no more profound or significant than the calling God has on your life in your work. I oftentimes see the calling of your work far more fruitful than the gospel than my work. Who am I talking to most of the time? All y'all, y'all, most y'all saved. Most y'all are going to be in heaven. And there's purpose to this, but it isn't the kind of purpose that you have in your work. Remember Paul Herbert? Remember Judge Paul and the ministry he did with uh, the human trafficked in, in downtown Columbus? I sat with him when, within weeks of the epiphany in his life to move in that minute and toward that ministry. And he was thinking about leaving that work and going into full-time ministry because for him at the time, calling from God meant going into ministry. And I was like, Paul, what God has put on your mind is ministry. And if you leave it, I said, please stay, please stay. Now, he wasn't listening solely to me. I was a, resound, I was a voice in a chorus of people saying, Judge Paul, you got to do this thing. And, and many of you if, you, if you don't know the story, you can find it easily. It's been written about even in the Columbus uh, Dispatch for years. It's beautiful, wonderful ministry, a calling that just 
came so clearly from God, but not to leave his work to, to revolutionize and change the nature of his work. This is where you get to sit. Paul says to the church in Colossia, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Let that change your mind, right? Your work would maybe obviously and more be, maybe, you know, just obviously be for some human boss. And God is saying, no, see your work as though you are working for God and not that human. Look, you can hear it. Paul is saying, look, your work is far more significant, far more important than you could ever imagine. Paul's saying to this church in Colossia, none of whom have any ministry church jobs. <laughs> there weren't any at that. They were just, just was the first church, right? And he's saying to them, your work is a part of God's great plan, regardless of how you might categorize the task. Think about that. Think about your work, literally, your work. You're, you're, you're raising a child. You're, 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 you're raising crops. You're uh, uh, serving a customer. You're writing a program. You're whatever you're doing. You're teaching a child. You're building a building, right? Your work. Imagine your work. Imagine your environment. Imagine your boss. And then imagine, like Isaiah, seeing God, seeing God high and lifted up as the ultimate boss of that work. You're at your desk. You're walking across the street. You're walking into the next room. And you envision your work now as something unto God. What does that look like? It looks like worship. It looks like worship. A fuller biblical understanding of work reveals something much deeper, something sacred. In the Hebrew language, the word avodah carries dual meaning. When the word avodah is in the Hebrew Bible. It means either work or worship. How about them apples? Do you need a better tie-in than that? Anything else would prove to you how closely associated work and worship are? It's the same word. Work, in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, in the eyes of God, is worship. Literally. But is it? It isn't if it, that's not your posture. If it's just a grind, it's just a waste of time, it's just an expenditure of energy so that I can survive, it's not worship. But it can be. It is. And it can be. We see this uh, Abadah applied throughout the Old Testament. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, they were forced into harsh Abadah. Work, building grand monuments for Pharaoh. The same word was used to describe their service to God once they were freed. Moses implored Pharaoh 
This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may avodah me. Worship. Work or worship. In both cases, you're working and you're worshiping. Even in the negative sense, they were working. They were, they were subject to harsh, enslaved work, avodah, but they were actually building a worshipy thing to Pharaoh. <laughs> and then when they were gone, their work was worship to the one true God. When they were freed to Avodah, they were not building monuments to human ego anymore. They were serving the Lord. Avodah, the word Avodah, embodies the spiritual significance of work, transforming it from mere labor into powerful form of worship, a divine service that honors God. Could it be, could it be that every task we perform, every duty we fulfill is not only part of our calling, but also an opportunity for worship? Can our daily grind truly be transformed into a divine practice that pleases and glorifies God? The answer according to scripture is a resounding yes, yes. The question is, can you buy that? Can you, can you own that? Can you take that on as part of your worldview, part of your Christian view? I would encourage you to think about it. Pray about it. Ask God what it is he is calling you to do or how it is he is calling you to do what you're already doing. Talk about it with friends. What's your calling? What's God doing with your life? Where is he directing you? How's that sound? What's it look like? How do you figure that out? If it's true that your work is designed to be your worship and it's designed to contribute to the thriving of the community in which you live, how would that apply in your setting? It's worth the time of anything in your life that is worth time. It's worth setting anything aside to figure this out. I have a section here that makes this practical in one sense, and I'm going to abbreviate dramatically. One way that your work can be worshipful is how the proceeds of your work, the resources within your control to steward, are handled. One very particular extrapolation of worship from the workspace is your generosity. What God brings about, remember the, the verse we looked at for way too long about when the ox, where there are no ox, oxen, the barns are empty, they're clean, but the oxen bring about an abundant harvest and increase. Our work oftentimes does, it's not always promised, but it's a principle that hard work will end up in increase, an abundant harvest. But the end point in God's economy is not abundance. It's not increase. That's not the end point. The end point is generosity. In Genesis 12, when God was starting the whole the old Jewish tribe and 
movement that we now know of, he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the Abrahamic, Abrahamic principle that Christians all over the world embrace. We are blessed and when we are blessed, we are blessed to be a blessing. The end point of God is not to be blessed how often do our worldviews end there? How often do our prayers end there? I need something, God. I need you to come, God. I need you to provide. I need you to, this is a, the, nothing wrong with that prayer. God, we are in need. God shows us time and again. Jesus shows us. Come to me with your needs. Come to me with, with what you need. If you're brokenhearted, you're empty, come to me. I want to fill. I want to give. But that's not the end. We are to be conduits of blessing, not Pools or lakes, ponds of blessing, moving blessing. One of the, my favorite lessons that Pastor Jim's pay ever taught me was never come to pray to God with a full cup. If he's filled your cup, pour it out and come back. He's an endless provision of blessing. To trust him for that when we're pouring it out, we tend to be a little fearful about the blessings that came. But in God's kingdom, our generosity is the end point. The aim in God's economy and your work is generosity, not increase. Our work is worship and it gives us the freedom in some cases to be generous. And I want to say briefly that worship also takes work. I think taking generosity, for example. It's worship, but it takes work. I ask you to consider your finances and I ask you to think about how you could uh, give during this season where we're building this building and how you could move your weekly giving into a more sacrificial space. And as we've reported, you, you answered in, in a minute and have sustained it. And, and we need that. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it took work to do it. You had to sit and think and pray. You had to do some math. You actually had to take it, you had to make a decision. You had to possibly sacrifice some things. It took work to do the worship. It's not passive. Our work is our worship, and our worship takes work. Even here in this corporate setting, I don't know if you've thought about this, but the way you prepare for this time deeply impacts what happens in this time. If your heart is not ready, your mind is not ready, you're coming through that door, you haven't given it a single thought, <laughs> you know as well as I do, you're 12, 13 minutes in before you're even here. But if we worked at our worship, if Saturday night we started praying for what's happening Sunday morning, for who might walk up to the door for the first time in a long time, for who I might see that I haven't seen, for who I have to forgive that I haven't forgiven. And we think about praying for Pastor Tammy or whoever's leading and standing up and leading in worship, whoever's preaching that morning, whoever's teaching the kids. There's some work that's worship. We have some worshipers that are worshiping every week in Kids Community Church. Work, worship takes work. Even this worship takes intentionality from us. If we're going to raise $400,000 we need for the last 20% of the project, it's going to take some work. 
me and from you. But that work moves into generosity and that generosity is worship. And that worship and that generosity is not just a blessing for us, it's a blessing for the community. And we've mapped it out that way. That building is gonna be used more by other people than by us. It's a beautiful intersection where the gospel can come to bear in people's minds and hearts who need it. But it's work. It's gonna take work for us to worship, for us to be generous, to be a blessing. In the meantime, let me encourage you to work. Your work smells good to God. You can quote me on that. You can quote Leviticus. You probably never quoted Leviticus in your life. You can memorize this verse and quote it this week, and you can say that comes from Leviticus, and someone will say, I've never heard anybody quote from Leviticus before. He says, the, the, the Leviticus, the law, the, the law in great detail and great minutia says, you are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering. That's work in the direction of worship. I can guarantee, I'm gonna gonna ask you, you've probably never burned internal organs or legs with water, but how do you think it smells? Pretty bad, actually. I, I can only imagine. Not to God. And he says, and it's an aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because of the posture and what it was done and why it was done and that you did it and they did it for him. We look at our work and we think this stinks. Doesn't have to. It can smell really, really good to God. Paul says to the church in Rome, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper not Abadah, Abadah is Hebrew. This is Greek, Latria. Same situation. It could be interpreted work or worship. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he's the one over it all, high and lifted up. Offer your bodies, offer your life, your work, all of it as a living sacrifice, not one that's burnt up and set on the altar, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, smelling good. This is your true and proper work, worship. So as we step into the coming week, remember this divine connection between our work and our worship. Let us approach our tasks, be they small or uh, uh, significant, with a sense of sacredness, knowing that through them we are serving and glorifying God. May every act of our hands, every resource in our grip, every word from our lips, every thought in our minds become a living testimony of our faith, a tangible expression of our worship, a true avidah that delights the heart of God. God, it is our deepest heart, not always our most conscious thought, but it is our deepest hearts, followers of your son, that our lives would count and matter to you the most. God, give us the means and the ability and the time and the heart and the spirit to listen, to look, to find, 
vocation delights you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.